Welcome to the seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. TMC seminars are a semi-monthly gathering of faculty, clinicians, students, trainees, and others interested in the intersection of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. Friends, welcome to this uh, TMC seminar. I'm Far Curlin. If I haven't met you, I'm the, one of the co-directors of the TMC seminar. And we're delighted this week to have Dr. Tamara Fitzgerald speaking with us. Dr. Fitzgerald is a pediatric surgeon um, and her uh, here at Duke, and her academic and clinical interests particularly focus on improving surgical care in low- and middle-income countries. She's been working with surgeons in Sub-Saharan Africa to improve the training of young surgeons there, um, looking to uh, uh, facilitate low-cost, basically affordable devices that can improve surgical care in, in uh, low- and middle-income countries. But today, she's not going to talk about that as much, maybe. But she's going to speak to us on the title of Hearing God's Voice in Our Academic Lives. So join me in welcoming Dr. Fitzgerald. Thank you for um, asking me to come today. Um, I have a couple disclosures. First of all, I don't have a divinity degree. I have two degrees, both in the science. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and other thing I want to say, how many people here in the room feel like at some point in your life, you feel like you heard God's voice for yourself? Like you feel like you heard something from him? Just raise your hand. Okay. Um, so I kind of want you to take away from this talk I'm going to talk a little bit about my experience with that. I don't want to make it sound like I'm somehow special because I've heard those things or I'm not making it trying to sound like other people don't hear as well. Um, But I feel like when I was a medical student and when I was going through training, I really didn't have a lot of people in my life that were doctors and were trying to follow Jesus. And so um, kind of coming to this conference, I thought, it might be helpful for those of you that are about ready to go through that process just to kind of hear somebody else's story about what that was like. So I'm hoping that's kind of what you take away from this talk. Um, And I hope as well that what you really hear is a story of the faithfulness of God, that he's with you during these things um, and that he's eager to chat with us and eager to talk to us. So I hope that's really what you take away. Um, so I think this is kind of like a famous picture. I think somebody, when I was a little kid, probably gave me a Bible that had this picture on it. It's a very famous verse. Um, Jesus is saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and I will eat dinner with him and he with me. And I think there's something unique about hearing God's voice as an entry into our relationship with him and communicating with him. But... I'm also here to say, I don't want the picture to look like that. I want the picture to look like this, right? And it's Valentine's Day today, so I can make that kind of a claim. Um, I also think an important thing about hearing from God is faith comes from hearing. So if you've heard something and you know that you know that you've heard God say that to you, it gives you the courage to put all your faith into that thing. Um, And so that's another reason why I just think it's really important for us to learn to hear. If you think about the different stories in the Bible of people that heard things like Gideon 
Elisha asks that his servant's eyes will be open to the army that's out there. Joseph, like, has the courage to marry a single mom who's carrying a baby that is not his. All of these people, they were able to do what they did because they heard God say something and they knew that they had heard that. And so they were able to put their faith in. Um, This is kind of a a quote that Albert Einstein made. And it's not directly about hearing God's voice, but I think it is kind of a statement that's related to it. So he said, The intuitive mind is a sacred gift, and the rational mind is a faithful servant. We have created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. And I think a lot of it, sometimes the way that we hear God's voice, it's more of our intuitive minds that pick that up. And sometimes he speaks to us through logical things. Um, But I think we are living in a society that we have really um, kind of narrowed in on, like what can be proven scientifically and all of those things. And we don't sometimes give honor to the other part of things. Okay, so in this section of the talk, I just kind of wanted to briefly just do a little run-through of examples of ways that God speaks that are found in the Bible. So, first of all, reading scriptures. I think that's how a lot of us hear his voice. There's good examples of that within the Bible. Um, The second is what I would call percolatory hearing. That's like a word that I've made up, percolatory hearing. But it's kind of this idea of, like, over time, you just feel like, God's saying something to you and he's depositing things into you and over time it kind of builds up and you realize at some point like, oh, God's saying this to me. Have you guys ever had that kind of experience before? Okay. Um, I think journaling and meditation is also a good way to hear God's voice. Kind of like asking him questions and listening to what he says back and writing things down and journaling and meditating on like the things that he's already said in the Bible that's a good way to hear his voice. Sometimes he gives us images of things. Um, one good example is when Nathaniel and Jesus first meet. Nathaniel is like, how do you know me? And Jesus said, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree. So he had some kind of an image or a vision or something before he saw Nathaniel. And sometimes we just get a sudden knowing. Like we just suddenly hear something from God and we knew that he said that to us. And I think a good example of this is Simeon, when he was in the temple, um, he felt like the Holy Spirit had told him that he would see the Messiah before he died. And then Jesus and Mary come into the temple with Jesus, and suddenly he just knows that that is the Messiah, right? He just just knew. Um, There's certainly examples of God's audible voice talking to people. Um, Sometimes God uses other people to speak to us. Um, example of that would be all the prophets in the Bible who God gives them messages and they tell other people. This is the last slide. Um, I think sometimes we sense God through beauty or art or nature. Um, you see this a lot in the Psalms where David's talking about like something in nature and how God's nature is reflected in that. But I feel like sometimes like I'll see a movie and in seeing the movie like I feel like I've heard something from God uh, through the concepts that were presented. Um, Dreams are actually one of the most common ways that God speaks to people in the Bible. If you think about um, some of the events in history that God left up to somebody listening to him in a dream, it's really quite remarkable. Um, For example, Joseph, 
who is an interpreter of dreams, he basically saved not only Egypt, but the surrounding area from a famine that would have like killed millions of people, right, because of a dream. Um, the only thing we know about Joseph, who is Jesus' father on earth, is that he had dreams, and he listened to them, and he acted on what he heard. That's really the only thing we know about the man that raised Jesus. Um, there's certainly angelic visitations described, and then people have had like crazy experiences, visions, transportations, things like that. Um, so I think we need to be open to hearing God's voice through all of those modalities, but I also think we need to have discernment. So um, obviously there's things that happen in the world which are not God at all, <laughs> um, and so we need to have discernment. And the way that we know if something is from God is does it line up with what the Bible has already said that God is like and the things that God says. So we really have to ask ourselves that question. So I just kind of want to share a few things that I have found to be true in my own experience of this. Um, as I said, in order to correctly interpret the things that we hear from God, we have to be familiar with his ways. So let me give you an example. Let's say um, I tell you I was coming home from work yesterday. My husband sent me a text, and he said, Hey, babe, we're out of snacks in this house. Like, we really need some snacks. On your way home from work, can you stop at the grocery store and pick up some goat cheese, some olives, and some really good crackers? Okay, how many of you guys think that my husband said that? How many of you guys think my, there's no way my husband said that? Okay, how many of you guys know my husband? <laughs> None of you, right? So you have no idea if he said that or not because you don't know my husband. I know my husband really well, and I know that he hates olives, he hates good cheese, <laughs> and like he doesn't call me babe, he calls me love. So I know just right away hearing that, like, my husband didn't say that, right? And we have to do the same thing with God. If we know him and we're in a relationship with him, when we hear somebody say something, we know, like, whether he said that or not. <clears throat> okay, the other thing is, character is not the same thing as gifting. <laughs> So gifting is the abilities that God gives us, but character is our responsibility to develop. And I think um, there's been lots of people in history that have been very gifted at things, including spiritual things, but they have not developed their character to the same level. And I think that's gotten them into a lot of trouble, and it's also turned off a lot of people around them to God because they see that gift, and then they see the way that they act. And it's very confusing, because how could you be... Uh, operating in such a gift and not actually have the character to go with it. So we got to pay attention to that. Um, in general, the closer we are to God, the more time we spend with him, the more we will hear from him. Intimacy is the beginning of all fruitfulness. And this is like a spiritual truth that's reflected in biology, basically. I've also found that when I've heard something very, very clearly from God, it usually means it's going to be hard. <laughs> and I think um, sometimes he gives us that clarity because he can see what's coming, and you're going to need that clarity to move forward with like what he's given you. Um, so when I hear something from God and it's kind of vague, now I'm just like, okay. Because <laughs> I know that's going to be easier going forward. Um, I also think do not make a major life decision based on one thing you thought you heard from God. 
if it's really from God, he's happy to confirm it to you in multiple ways. Um, and I also think it's good to talk to friends who also listen to God and bump, you know, bump it off them. You think, I think this is what God's saying. Like, what do you think about that? I think we're meant to be in community about this. Okay, so those are my, like, little tips. Um, now I just kind of wanted to tell you a little story of kind of where this has, like, shown up in my career and career decisions that I've made based on hearing God's voice. Um, just to give you an example of what it's looked like for me. Um, so when I was a kid, I'm guessing maybe it was around 1980, that would be like when I was five. Um, I remember being in my room, just playing, and I wouldn't say that I heard, I didn't hear like an audible voice or anything, but I just remember having like a conversation with somebody. Um, and that somebody kind of posed a question like, what do you think you'll do when you grow up? And I was like, I don't know. And the person on the other end said, well, what do you think about becoming a doctor? Um, and that was kind of something out of from left field because I come from a family. We didn't have any doctors. Um, nobody really went to college. Um, and so what I replied was, well, I've heard that like doctors don't get a lot of sleep. And my grandma says, I need my girls need their beauty sleep. <laughs> and then on the other end, the voice kind of said, like, well, there may be some sacrifices along the way, but just think about it. Um, okay, so year 2004, this is the year I was graduating from medical school. Um, there was this thing in me that really um, just wanted to like find out what global health was about, and I just knew that was something that I would be interested in. Um, so during medical school, I went on a rotation to Cameroon, and I worked with a surgeon there um, for a month. And this one night, I was laying in bed, and I was just kind of like singing this little song to myself about, um, it was a song like about knowing God and seeing his face and hearing his voice and things like that. Um, and we had this patient at the hospital who had been, he was a kid, and he had been in a very, very bad fire. Um, and to this day, like his face is the worst face I've ever seen in my life. Um, he just had a lot of scarring and contractures and things like that. Um, and whenever I would see him in the hospital, like I would wave to him and he would hide behind something because he was so ashamed for anybody to look at him. So anyways, I'm like laying in my bed, kind of like singing the song. And then all of a sudden, I just like felt God say to me, do you, do you really want to see my face? Because that is what I look like. Um, and just that moment, it just had a very profound effect on me and the way um, I kind of like viewed being a doctor and viewed being my, who my patients were. Okay, so match day. So I went to school in Boston. I really, really wanted to stay in Boston. I really wanted to match there um, for a number of reasons. And then two weeks before the match, um, I had a dream which woke me up at 2 o'clock in the morning. It was like one of those very clear dreams when you suddenly wake up. And basically it was a dream where I could see into the computer system and I saw my match list and I saw the computer kind of like working, like matching everybody up with their match. And as it was doing this, I saw like my first choice get scratched off and then it was like cranking and then I saw my second choice get scratched off. 
and I went down the list and then my first out of Boston program did not get scratched off the list and I like woke up suddenly um, and two weeks later that's exactly what happened I matched to that program um, that I saw in the dream and I think God was telling me very clearly like this is the thing that I have for you this is where you're going because um, I was actually really devastated that I was moving out of Boston like I love living there um, and I feel like residency was hands down like the hardest season of my life um, so that brings us into 2006 so 2006 um, I'm kind of like a second-year resident in surgery um, I'm really exhausted I'm totally burned out um, I'm kind of feeling like did I pick the wrong thing because I work all these hours every week and I'm starting to like depersonalize my patients and myself and I don't really feel like very much of a follower of Jesus because I never go to church because I'm always on call I'm always working I don't uh, have a quiet time I don't do any of these things um, and I felt like in that season like God was saying to me all of those things are good like going to church reading your Bible having quiet time like doing all those things those are good things but they're not me and this is a season where you're gonna learn to like just be with me like if I'm the only thing you have that is gonna be enough and that's what this season is about so anyways 2006 um, I actually did manage to make it to a small group um, at my church one night and there was this guy who was visiting a small group who's really really super good at hearing God's voice and he's really good at hearing God's voice for other people so I watched him go around a room um, of about 30 people and he would just like look at somebody he's never met and start telling them like all the stuff about their life and like what God is saying to them and I know that this stuff is true because I know those people right and he's never met them before um, so I watched him do that to like three people and then he came to me and he looked at me and he said I have this image of Jesus on the operating table and I feel like what God is saying to you is that you you have like these different parts of yourself like um, you have like this medical part and you have this academic part and you have this spiritual part and you're trying to figure out how all of these things are going to come together but what God wants you to know is that do not underestimate the power of learning how to do something well and learning how to do it with compassion okay so 2009 2012 I'm still in surgical training <laughs> um, so during this season I had just a lot of questions because I knew I wanted to do something in global health and I wasn't quite sure like how I was going to make that work um, my husband didn't really want to move um, to Africa and the only model I had previously seen was like people as missionary surgeons doing that um, so I had a lot of questions about what I was going to do when I finished residency and how I was going to make all the global health stuff work and during the season I kept having like this series of dreams where I would have a dream and the whole dream I was just thinking I was thinking in my mind during the dream like what is this dream even about like this doesn't make any sense like all this stuff is happening that doesn't make sense and at the very end of the dream I would see like way over in the corner I would see Jesus like doing something behind the scenes to like work stuff out and I felt like what he was saying to me was you you like nothing right now is making sense but I'm actually doing a ton of stuff behind the scenes to like set stuff up for you so just like 
stick with it, you know. Okay, 2013, this is the last year of my fellowship. Um, this person, Daruk Ozgates, he came as a new faculty to our program. Um, and he had actually been going to Uganda doing global surgery um, for a few years. So last year in my fellowship, I was able um, to go with him to Uganda and kind of see what he was doing and how he was making it part of his academic practice. And all of a sudden, this model opened up to me that like, oh, I could do that. Like I could actually do this as like an academic thing. And so this is our um, pediatric surgery team that's there. Um, basically, John Sekabira, who's this man right here, he was the only pediatric surgeon in Uganda for a number of years. And the country has about 39 million people. So you can imagine, if you're in a country that only has one pediatric surgeon, um, if your kid gets appendicitis, if your kid's born with a congenital anomaly, if your kid has a tumor, it's going to be almost impossible for you to get any kind of care. Because it's just the numbers. There's no way. Um, so Daruk and John Sekabira, they had started working together before I came on the scene. Um, and they were basically talking about, let's create a fellowship program so we can train more pediatric surgeons and so I won't be the only one. Um, so that was in 2013, it's 2020. Uh, now we have about six pediatric surgeons that have passed their boards and we have five fellows that are in training. So. Um, this is a quote from John Sekabira. He basically says, it takes the enthusiasm of an individual to improvise so that a patient can survive. Um, and there's obviously a lot of limitations of like what we can do. Um, but this is a worldwide problem in low-income countries mostly. Um, there's about five billion people in the world that lack access to surgical care. And just to kind of talk about, um, it's not just a number of like there's five billion people that five billion people, like they have a story about what it means when they can't access surgical care, right? Um, so I put this picture up. Um, there was one time I was on a global surgery trip in Bolivia, and there was a little boy who had had an anal rectal malformation, which means he didn't properly develop an anus when he was a baby. And so what happens to a lot of these kids in low-income countries, if they're lucky enough, when they're a baby, they can find a surgeon who can give them a colostomy. But then there's no surgeons in their country that know how to like actually make them an anus. So they end up living with this colostomy for like a really long time. Um, so this patient came to clinic um, to see about getting surgery. And the woman who was with him, I thought was his mom, but it came out later. She said, oh no, I'm actually his grandmother. His mom has another family now. And this is a story that I hear over and over and over again in low-income countries, is that kids who have congenital anomalies a lot of times they are abandoned, or the father will leave the family um, and leave them with the mother. So it really does um, change what happens to them. Um, we did some focus group discussions in Uganda just to kind of get at how this looks. Um, there are 15 families that were in this. 47% um, of the participants said their spouse had left the family. 93% had left their job for the child. Um, most of the children are not allowed to go to school, and um, they say other caregivers were a supportive force. So um, at this point in the talk, I just want to kind of talk about the concept of, um, in the beginning of my academic career, I felt like God started saying things to me about, you know, we have thoughts that we 
think during the day when we see the problems that we see. We also have concepts that we learn from different spiritual sources. Um, and I think we kind of like think about those, we start thinking about those things together. And I felt like God kind of started saying to me, like, why don't you start incorporating that wisdom into your career and into what you do? Um, so I just, the rest of this talk, I'm going to talk a little bit about kind of that concept of just incorporating like both the things I've heard from God and just the things um, that as followers of Jesus we believe, like incorporating that into the problems that we see in the world. Okay, so as I said before, um, what is global surgery? I think it's changing over time. Like in my mind when I was finishing fellowship, I thought, oh, that's where you like, you know, go work at a mission hospital and you become a missionary surgeon. And I think a lot of us have an idea um, it's somewhere, it's something we like go for two weeks and we do a mission and we do as many cases as we possibly can and then we come back, we bring a lot of stuff, we bring a lot of supplies um, and I think in a lot of people's minds like that's what global surgery is. But if you look at this region, um, this is a Coxsexa region of Africa, so it's um, a surgical society that includes these countries. Um, if you look at the population of this area, it's about similar to the population of the United States. But if you look at how many pediatric surgeons there are, there's only 45. So that would be like in the United States, if every state had like one pediatric surgeon and some states didn't have any pediatric surgeons. Um, but if you think about this concept of us going and doing mission trips and trying to do as many cases as we can, um, if you look at all of Sub-Saharan Africa, um, there's about 800 million people and half of them are children. Whereas we only have 359 million people in the U.S. and Canada, and we have about 1,000 pediatric surgeons. So even if we were to take every single pediatric surgeon we have in the United States and Canada and move them all to Sub-Saharan Africa to work full-time, we wouldn't meet the need because we, we wouldn't be enough. So clearly, like, going on mission trips and doing those things is well-intentioned, but it's not going to actually solve the problem. So do we need to change our lens and go differently? Um, so I think in order to change our lens, we first have to think about what kind of names do we call low-income countries? Because I think that says a lot about how we view them and how we think about them. Um, so I think the most common name is third world country. That's a name I hear a lot. And so I looked it up one day, like where did that come from? Um, there was a French anthropologist named Alfred Savy. And during the Cold War, he wrote an essay. So if you aligned with the US and Europe, he considered you a first world country. If you aligned with the Soviet bloc, you were a second world country. And if you didn't really have a dog in the fight, then he called you a third world country. And somehow, like over the decades, we've come to associate that term, third world country, with countries that are poor and don't have resources and don't have infrastructure and things like that. Um, I also a lot of times hear people say, well, that's a developing country. Okay, does anybody know where this picture is coming from? Any guesses? All right, this is where my first job at a fellowship was in El Paso, Texas. Mm -hmm. So this is in our country. And people live in these houses that don't have any plumbing or any electricity. Um, this picture on the right, I guess it's for you guys, um, is downtown Kampala, Uganda. So I think in whatever way, like, we're all developing, we all have our issues. 
Um, another phrase I hear is that's an underserved area. And I just think, really? Like, all of the money that's been raised and all of the NGOs that there are and all the missions hospitals that have been established and all the people in those countries that have been working decades to like improve their own countries, I don't think the problem is that nobody's serving. I think like actually a lot of people serve. So it's, the problem is not that we haven't served. Okay, and then I hear people say, well, that's a low resource country. Okay, so Uganda has more national parks than any other country in Africa. Um, they, most of the world's remaining gorillas live in that country. And I just think like, if this, if the kind of resources that were there were in the United States, I just think about like the way we would use those resources and what we would do and all the money that we would make, right? Uh, Mozambique is one of the poorest countries in the world. The third largest oil field in the world has been discovered off the mm -hmm. coast of Mozambique. And when you drive around Malawi, you just see like fields and fields of tea and coffee being grown. Um, and if you look at where all the diamonds in the world come from, most of them come out of Africa, actually. Okay, so um, this gets to a point that I just want to make about the difference between facts and the difference between truth. Facts is kind of what exists all around us. Um, so an example of fact would be gravity, right? It's just kind of thing that we've observed. Everything sticks to the ground. Everything falls. Um, and for thousands and thousands of years, uh, it was kind of just a fact, like humans don't fly, right? We're not birds. But at some point, somebody paid attention to the fact that there's a truth that's contained in Bernoulli's equation. And Bernoulli's equation says that you can have lift. And somebody started paying attention to that truth and created an airplane, which totally like changed the way we live because we paid attention to the truth and not to the facts. So in this example, um, the fact is millions of people lack access to surgical and medical care. That's a fact, like let's not pretend that it doesn't exist. But the truth is that this problem is actually solvable in our lifetime. And I think sometimes people think that's an outrageous statement um, because sometimes we have this view that the world is growing worse, right? Every time a bomb goes off, every time something happens, you see it on Facebook, you see it on CNN, so it sometimes gives us the impression that the world is just like going to hell in a handbasket. But there are lots of markers that actually say that the world is increasingly, exponentially getting better. So the number of people that are not living in absolute poverty um, is going up. Yeah. Maternal mortality in like every country in the world is going down. Child mortality, every country in the world going down. Life expectancy, every country in the world going up. And if you think about in our own country, this paper came out in 1944. This is a description of the first successful repair of a tracheoesophageal fistula. Before 1944, all of these babies in our country died. Today, if I'm counseling a family, if they're like otherwise a normal kid, I'm like, this has a, like a 99% survival, like this child is not going to die. And 1944 <laughs> was not that long ago, right? There's people still alive that were around in 1944. Um, you guys know who Francis Collins is? He's the director of the NIH? Okay. So he has actually written a very good um, kind of biography about the Human Genome Project. We should get him to come speak at Team Season. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've tried. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But he writes in the book about how the first big um, gene discovery that he made, he made, he literally like for months and months and months and months and months was looking for this gene. And he said, it was with some astonishment that I learned three years later, which would be in 1987, that a few visionary scientists had begun to discuss the possibility of determining the DNA sequence of the entire human genome, estimated to be three billion base pairs in length. Surely, this was not a goal that would be achieved during my lifetime. And we all know from the Human Genome Project, it was actually achieved before it was scheduled to be achieved, right? So this just um, gets me back to my point of not paying attention to the facts, but instead focusing on the truth. Um, so the first flight occurred in Kitty Hawk in 1903. And when people stopped thinking about just the facts and started paying attention to the truth, it was only about 60 years later that we were able to put a man on the moon. So within a single person's lifetime, we went from never having flown to going to the moon. Um, President Kennedy made a speech kind of right about before that time about going to the moon, and this is what he said. So we choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one we are unwilling to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one in which we intend to win. And I just think about that quote, and I think about all the kids that live in Sub-Saharan Africa. And you know what? They all have cell phones. So somehow, we live in a world where we've managed to get kids access to cell phones, but we haven't managed to think about how we can get them access to surgery that they need. And that is something that I am unwilling to postpone. Um, so lastly, I just kind of want to talk a little bit about um, like a plan that I see for accomplishing that goal. And I want to start by just honoring the mentors that I've had in my life. Like I'm sure all of us sitting in this room, we have a slide like this of all the people that have invested in us. So I think the key to this problem is we actually have to develop a culture of mentorship. And this culture of mentorship has to extend um, out of our immediate boundaries. Um, but in order to talk about this culture, I think we first have to talk about the opposite of the culture, which is being an orphan. So um, I'm using this as a metaphor. Obviously, if you grew up in a situation where you did not have parents, please don't take offense to what I'm about to say. Um, but in general, orphans, um, they kind of operate out of a mode of scarcity, right? They don't know when their next meal is going to be. They don't know who's going to provide for them. They don't know who they can turn to when they need help. And so they're constantly running in survival mode. Um, a friend of mine, she used to take in foster kids, and like the kids would sit at the table, and they would just eat everything all at once, and there would be nothing for anybody else to eat because they're so used to like not knowing where their next meal is going to come from that they just when food is put in front of them, you just eat everything, right? Um, another characteristic is when we have an orphan mindset, we hear a criticism, and our first response is we just take offense to that, and we don't like stop and think about what is true in that criticism. Um, often, if you're operating in an orphan mindset, you're threatened by the success of others. Um, so an example would be, you know, I'm here at Duke, I have to write grants to sustain my uh, projects, 
if I hear somebody else got a grant, instead of being happy for that person, I'm just like, oh, they got a grant, that's one less grant that's out in the world for me to get, and you know, you feel jealous or whatever. Um, and they don't ask for help, because historically for them, there's been nobody to ask. So if we con contrast that to what it means to be a son or a daughter, um, first of all, you have to position yourself appropriately to become a son or a daughter, right? You have to humble yourself and ask somebody to adopt you, basically. Um, but once you do that, you can be in thriving mode because you know who you belong to, you know who there is to ask for help so you can proceed with confidence. Um, sons and daughters, they understand that when they hear a criticism, you don't have to like get offended, but you can recognize that criticism is about the gap between where I am now and like where I'm going. And I need to fit, fill in that gap. Um, and they also view the success of another as an invitation. So if your friend gets that amazing grant, instead of being jealous, you go to them and say, hey, I'd like to get one of those grants. Like, will you show me how you did that? Um, and then I'm sure we've all had moms and dads in our life, besides our own parents, um, that have really nurtured us in ways that have got us to where we are now. So a good mom or dad, they help us to come, become mature. They see who we are meant to be sometimes before we even see it ourselves. They call out the true person that we are. So when we make mistakes, um, they kind of say to us, yeah, that was a stupid thing that you did, but it's not who you are, it doesn't define you, and you can walk in who you truly are. They don't prepare us for our current job, they prepare us for our destiny. So, for example, um, I'm a surgeon at Duke, we have a surgery program. There's not a single intern in the surgery program that I am training to be a good intern. I'm training those interns to be good surgeons, to take care of patients, to be leaders in national committees, to be chairs of departments someday. Like that's what I'm training those interns to do. I'm not training them to be a good intern. Um, good moms and dads, they want us to make it farther than they did. Like a good mom or a good dad doesn't get jealous because their kid does something that they could never do. They're excited that their kid made it farther than they did. And lastly, um, you can't get an inheritance if like everybody's the same, right? You can only get an inheritance from a mom or a dad. And getting an inheritance means you're getting something which you yourself did not work for. You're just getting it because you're inheriting it from them. Okay, so is what I said paternalistic? Um, I think sometimes we've seen models of sonship or mothering and fathering that has not been right. And so when we start talking about moms and dads and mentoring, we start thinking of paternalism. But if we were just to get rid of the whole thing because we've seen bad examples, that makes about as much sense as saying, there's counterfeit money in the world, I'm gonna get rid of all my money. Right, we would never do that. And what I would argue is that paternalism is when one group of people decides that they're always gonna be the moms and the dads, and another group of people is forever gonna be the kids. Paternalism has no um, intention to develop kids into becoming moms and dads. And colonialism is just when a whole country decides that they're gonna do that on a very large scale. Um, and if you think about a lot of the dictators that exist, they're basically orphans who just have an incredible leadership gift. 
Okay, so getting back um, to our program in Uganda, so these are some of the few, a few of the future grandmothers and grandfathers of pediatric surgery. Um, CNN actually did an article. Um, they went out and did kind of outreach camp in a different part of Uganda and offered a lot of operations to these kids who are born with anal rectal malformations. And I love this slide because um, they've actually done several separating conjoined twins, which is a surgery that I've never done. I've never done that. But people that I've trained are like doing something that I've never done. That's cool. Um, and this year, the Coxexa meeting was in Uganda. They rotate the countries that they have it in. And that man over there is President Museveni, and he came and gave my graduates their diplomas this year. Okay, so I just have two slides left. Um, I just kind of want to briefly talk about this concept of moms and dads and kids and where kind of the, this talk came from. And so in Luke 15, um, Jesus tells us three parables of what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he basically says, it's like a shepherd looking for a lost sheep. It's like a woman who's lost a coin and she searches her whole house to find the coin. And it's like a father who has this lost son. Um, and I think it's interesting because there's three stories and you can see how each of these stories, like one is kind of more about Jesus, one is kind of more about the Holy Spirit and one is kind of more about God the Father. Um, but I think the interesting thing about the story about the father is, first of all, we kind of know it as the story of the prodigal son. But it's not really a story about the son, it's a story about the father. So it should be called the st story of the extravagant father. Um, so we all know the story. Basically, this son goes off, he squanders his dad's inheritance, he like uses it on partying and prostitutes and all these kinds of things. And then at some point, he comes to his senses and realizes the life he's living is not as good as the life he could be living back in his father's house. So he comes back home. His father sees him from a distance. He welcomes him back. But there's a second son. And I think a lot of us in academia were actually the second son. Because for a long time, we've done all the right things. We've gotten all the good grades. Um, and then, so when the son comes home, the second son, he's like really upset. And he's like, you know, dad, I've worked really hard for you. You've never given me a party. Like, um, what the heck, you know? Um, and the father says to him, my son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. And I remember like reading this parable and thinking like, God, what does that mean? Everything I have is yours. Like, what does that mean? And he's like, it means everything I have is yours. Like, <laughs> there's no hidden meaning there. <laughs> um, but I think we kind of forget that, like, who the God is that we're following and, like, the kind of resources that he has and that we actually have access to all of those resources. Um, we have access to his wisdom. We have access to his financial resources. I mean, we have access to everything. Um, the trick is figuring out how to get it, right? Um, <laughs> and then I'm just going to end um, by telling this story. So these are my kids. I also want an excuse to put my kids up here. Um, these are my kids. But a couple years ago, um, we were kind of up in a mountain town on vacation, and we walked into one of those stores that's just like full of souvenirs for the area. And my son, he says to me, he's like, Mommy, 
if I buy something in here, will you pay for it? And I thought, my son gets it. He gets the concept that everything I have is his. Like, he gets it. Um, and so I just think, yeah, like, you just say that to God. Like, God, if I, if I buy something in here, if I invest in something, in something in here, will you pay for it? And I think his response is, I already have. Um, okay, so the last part of the talk, I just wanted to do an exercise. So if you can take um, like two or three my cards and just pass them around. We're just going to do um, a little exercise about hearing God's voice. Um, I have some, we're just going to start out by, I'm just going to read um, just some interactions from the Bible that God has had with people, just to kind of remind ourselves of the kinds of things that God says and the kinds of things that he does for people. Um, and then I'm going to just read out some questions that we're going to kind of sit and just ask God to speak to us about. Um, so if you guys just want to kind of like close your eyes, just kind of, um, yeah, just kind of open your spirit towards God and just kind of listen and see what he would say. And then when it's done, um, I'll give you time to write down kind of whatever you think you've heard on the note cards. I think it's important to write things down because we very quickly forget the things that we've heard and sometimes we really, really need those things later on. So, okay, so I'm just going to read these little snippets from stories. Uh, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and the Lord gave him success in everything he did. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen... Bezalel, son of Uri, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom and understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. I have also given ability to all of the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you. The Lord came and stood there, calling, as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Then Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, I have heard that the Spirit of God is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom to solve difficult problems. 
the angel went to Mary and said to her, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is nothing false. Then Jesus said, I tell you that you, Peter, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Okay, so I'm just going to read out some questions um, that we can just ask God. So God, what is your favorite thing about me? What kinds of things do you enjoy doing with me? When you made me, what were you thinking about me? God, would you show me a picture of how you see me? What is something that you have forgiven me for that you're hoping I will finally release forgiveness to myself? What things in my life should I be doing more of? What things in my life should I be doing less of? Would you show me something in my life that has died that you want to breathe on and bring new life to that thing? Okay, so just take a couple minutes and if you feel like you heard something, just write it down.
Okay, I think most people are done. It's not that many pens for me. Um, so I think we can just open the rest of the time. If you guys have questions or you have things you want to discuss. Um, yeah. So we can, uh, just to mention, we know some folks have to leave right at 1. We will continue and have Dr. Fitzgerald take questions until about 15 after. So you're welcome to stay. Till then, before we take questions, I just want to mention, in case I forget at the end, that next week, uh, Randy Clark will be with us. Um, some of you have heard about Randy Clark. He was uh, integrally involved at the beginning of what came to be known as the Toronto Airport, or Toronto Blessing, or Toronto Airport, the church revival, um, and has... Uh, gone on to be a speak around the world and teach around the world about healing. Um, uh, not a topic that we you know, typically talk about, strangely enough, in a place like uh, uh, a hospital like this, but one that's on our patients' minds all the time um, and their families. And uh, we're just going to hear Randy Clark and ask him some questions next week. That will meet over at the Divinity School. Um, in the AMCR is a little bit larger space because we're not sure how many folks might come out for that. So with that, questions for Dr. Fitzgerald. Forces in our reality that are very real and have different intentions for us and for humanity. Um, and I think sometimes it is confusing and it is daunting. Like, I mean, it's like the age-old question: like, if God is good, why do bad things happen in the world, right? Um, and I don't have all the answers to that question. Um, but I think that every time I experience God. I always experience him to be good, and I always experience him to be willing, um, and I've never experienced him to, like, lead me into something bad, you know? Um, in terms of my own life, I feel like when I was in that period during residency where I didn't know, like, how it was going to look for me to pursue global health or global surgery, I didn't even know, like, if I could find a job that was going to like let me do those kinds of things. Um, when I was finishing fellowship, I people kept saying to me, like, oh, well, that job in El Paso is like still available. Um, and I thought that would be like the last place I would ever move. And so at some point, I went out and interviewed for that job just because 
we had to like rule out because people kept saying things about it. Um, and then when I got out there, I was like, oh, this is like a global health kind of place and maybe this would be a good fit for me. And my, the guy who was going to be my boss out there, he had actually lived in Nigeria for 20 years working at a mission hospital. So he was very supportive of my global health things. Um, so I told him I would come out and take that job. After I agreed to take the job, um, I had kind of an interesting phone call. Um, it turns out that there was a family that my boss there had taken care of their child, and he didn't realize that they were extremely wealthy, and they had donated a million and a half dollar endowment that could only be used for global sur pediatric global surgery. So basically, um, they were calling me on the phone to like let me know that Dr. Meyer and myself were the only people that could use that many, and they were willing to pay for whatever I wanted to spend that money on. So I basically showed up at my first job uh, with a million and a half dollar endowment that I didn't think I could use. Yeah. And then um, <laughs> um, I feel like since coming to Duke, um, obviously I left that endowment behind when I made the decision to come here, but I also like heard many things from God that I knew coming here was the right thing. Um, when I was, the first time I interviewed here, Somebody was like looking at my CV and they mentioned like, oh, I see you have a PhD in biomedical engineering. And for me, that was something when I decided to pursue global health, I just kind of always thought like, oh, I'll never use that PhD for anything because um, biomedical engineering is such like a high tech thing. It has nothing to do with global surgery. Um, and so I kind of said, yeah, I don't really like do anything with it. And then um, after I decided to take the job here, I met with somebody else to talk about a different unrelated thing um, and they were like, oh, I see you have a PhD in biomedical engineering. You should, when you get here, go and talk to this woman named Mimi. Um, and that was the second time her name had come up. And then um, a few weeks later, my friend Shane, um, who's a water engineer at UTEP and is um, a very passionate follower of Jesus, he sent me a text. He didn't even know I was, like, thinking about taking this job. He sends me a text at 6 in the morning and says, I was just having my quiet time, and this thought came into my mind. Um, that I should introduce you to an engineering friend of mine. Um, and it was basically the person who mentored me. And so at that point, when I had heard that three times, I kind of was like, okay, God, what are you trying to say? Long story short, um, I came here and I met with her, and that was the way I started, like, the big project that I'm working on now. And within two months of being at Duke, I had a Bass Connections grant to work on that. Um, and I subsequently got other grants. So I feel like that was a way that God was kind of leading me into something that he knew I could get funding in and would fund my work. So I feel like there have been different ways that God has provided money in my best. Have you, uh, in the lives of um, the saints, uh, not, not a few have experienced a season where they don't hear God at all, despite crying out to God? And have you had a season like that? Yep, that was fellowship. Okay. <laughs> that yeah. was just hanging in there? Um, so I kind of had, I told you I had those series of dreams where I kept seeing God like do things in the background. And then um, I had a two-year period where I just felt like I heard nothing. My life did not make sense. Um, during that period, my dad suddenly died. Um, he was like one of my best friends. Um, I was staying at Yale for my fellowship. Um, and then the program director 
um, decided to leave and he took like all the faculty with him and kind of left behind somebody who was very um, emotionally and verbally abusive to me during that time. Um, and I was having a lot of marriage problems with my husband during that time. Um, so yeah, two year, the two years of my fellowship, I kept like asking God, like, where are you? <laughs> like, this is not making any sense. Like my life, I literally, there's nowhere I could go right now in my life that uh, feels good. Like when I'm at home, I'm like having marriage problems. When I'm at work, this person's abusive. When I'm and those are the only two places I am because I'm a president, so I'm always there. Um, yeah. Um, thank you. This is a really wonderful talk. I appreciated it. Um, I think one of the biggest takeaways that I've, I really liked how you kind of partitioned these ideas of um, orphans and then mother and fathering and then kind of touching on paternalism and colonialism. And my question for you is being involved in some of these groups, um, global health groups um, overseas, obviously personally you can draw on Christian resources to keep that um, intention of mothering and fathering from slipping into colonialism and paternalism. How as large organizations have you seen, do you see them tempted in that way? And if so, how do you keep to that mother and fathering model rather than something to colonialism or paternalism on more of a large scale? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think a lot of times we have examples in our life and we have good examples and bad examples and hopefully we try to follow the good ones and like ignore the bad ones. Um, I will say it's kind of a concern of mine that I've worked with both um, like secular organizations and Christian organizations. Um, and I feel like some of our Christian global health organizations, they've developed into like these big bureaucratic things. Um, and I've had a lot of experiences where I haven't felt like I'm encountering God in the way this thing is being structured. Does that make sense? And I wish that that was different. Like, one example, I was doing a, I was kind of filling in for somebody who's a surgeon usually there, and they were going on vacation, so I went to fill in for them. Um, and there was a guy who had just finished his residency um, who would consider himself, like, atheist agnostic, but he was really interested in global health, and so he had written this person and asked um, if he could come for the year and work. And this person had said, yes, like, absolutely. Um... And then after the year was over, he kind of felt like he wanted to stay and like work some more. And the big and the surgeon who was there was very willing to like have him. And at the same time, he had kind of been hanging out in this group with everybody on the mission hospital who were Christians. Um, and I feel like he was like this close to like stepping into the kingdom, right? Um, but the big organization said, "No, I'm sorry, he's not a Christian. He can't like stay um, and work there." And I understand, like, why those rules get made and, like, things have happened and such, but at the same time, I was like, hmm, we really missed it there. Like, we missed an opportunity. Like, he was being fathered, right? Um, and we just missed an opportunity to, like, show him, like, what the father's really like. Sure. Yeah. Cal? Um, I love the whole framing of mothership, fathership, and what that does to us and for us. Could you talk a little bit more about how that um, influences your relationship with the trainees, with your fellows, your residents? Um, I was really interested in a little bit that you did the 
shit about insurance. Yeah, I think um, I try. <laughs> I try to be a good mom. Um, and I do try to think of it in that context, but I think it makes it more um, relational. And I think um, I try to be vulnerable with them about, like, these are the things when I was training that were hard for me. Um, or, yeah, just when people make mistakes, just, you know, keeping them focused on who they really are or, like, trying to see in them things like, okay, like, I don't know if you realize, but, like, you were really good at that. Like, your peers, actually, it takes them a long time to figure that out, and you just did that. Um, so I think those are some of the ways. Oh, and, like, earlier this year, I had to write um, a letter of recommendation for somebody, and I kind of had this idea, like, well, why don't I write the recommendation not about, um, almost like a prophetic recommendation? Like, um... <laughs> like, not just about what this person has done, but like this is what I see of like where this person is going, and like this is why you should hire this person because someday this person is going to be this. So, yeah. I think that's how the Bible is written. <laughs> you know that that's that these ten commandments. That's how we're going to be. That, that's what our desire is going to be. So God could write it prophetically because he knows. One more question? Yes. I Maybe. just really want to thank you for sharing your story because um, I think it really adds another um, element for all of us and myself in, in the training path. And um, I was thinking a lot about what's so extraordinary about this model of um, daughtership and sonship and the model of adoption is that even for those who didn't necessarily experience that type of adoption um, and have in their earthly parents that the just extraordinary invitation is that God God will be that father God will be um, that parent to us and I think um and that it's our job to to share that message. I think too something I didn't talk about in the talk because I try to make that like I've given that talk, not the whole thing, but just the in between part about global health. I've given it in you know secular settings and things. Um, but what I don't talk about in there is we all come from imperfect families, right? Like none of our parents did everything the right way, and so I think um, we really need to go through a period of forgiveness and also just kind of recognizing like what the things were and what the things weren't that were good um, and come coming to God with those things um, yeah and just releasing forgiveness to our parents and also um, allowing God to father us and not um, putting up those walls because we've had bad experiences we may or may not have had bad experiences so guys, again, next week, Randy Clark uh, at the Divinity School and the AMCR is on the, the, the level that's uh, same level as the chapel. Um, and join me in thanking Dr. Fitzgerald. <laughs>